Hello and welcome to Trainer Tools. I'm John Tomlinson. This is a podcast for people working in learning development, training, facilitation, that sort of thing. And this month we've managed to create the longest one ever. So sorry about that, but it was really interesting and I'm someone who's worked in facilitation for many years and I learned a huge amount from this conversation that we could have gone on for longer actually, but I think it's a really, really good cast, so I hope you find it useful. If you'd like to support this podcast, please do. Please go to iTunes and leave a positive review and please share the content over social media and things like that. And it really does make a difference if you subscribe via iTunes or Android, whatever it is that gets podcasts onto telephones. It really does make a difference. So please, if you if you want to support this podcast, please write a review. Please subscribe. I'm here today with Nick Eve. Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Looking forward to this. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the podcast. And what is it that you wanted to speak about? Generally, I want to talk about facilitation, but very specifically, I want to talk about process and content and how that relates to facilitation. And this is your sort of specialist subject, isn't it? Your specialist, what you tend to do most of your training and facilitation on, isn't it? That's right. 99% of my work is, is training facilitators. Originally, I used to facilitate, but these days, for the last 15 years or so, it's been exclusively training facilitators. Okay, well, can you tell me how you're going to structure it? Yes. Um, I think I, I really wanted to start off with quite a broad approach and just kind of set out the, the area and then move step by step into more detail around process and content and end up really looking at exactly how it's used when you are facilitating. Um, and I guess some of it will, will come out as we talk, but uh, you know, really starting off with a very broad approach and then narrowing down as we go. All right, okay, well, what's the starting place? Um, I think pro- probably the starting place is just to say that facilitation is often described as working with process and content. If you talk to people about facilitation, people who facilitate, they will say that is the the initial doorway into facilitation. And by process, we mean how things happen. And with content, we mean what we're talking about. And at the start, that can sound a a very loose, non-specific definition. But I think as we move on, we'll get a lot clearer about what we mean by these two terms. Okay, so you're saying process and content, content being the actual stuff that you, so you might teach people. So new theory, new model, new technique, new knowledge, new skills. Exactly, yes. Whereas the process is how you learn it, what activities you do, what discussions you have, etc. Is that right? That's right. I mean, if we take this interview as, a, as an example, then I'm going to be talking about process and content with you. But the way in which we interact... Um, what's going on for us in as we talk, all the other bits and pieces in the background. That's the process that actually affects what I say about content and also um, how it's understood, how much sense it makes. So, um, and as a facilitator, that's what you're looking at. You're, right, okay. I think I'd like to mention at this point, there was we did a podcast a while ago with Catherine Thompson. Um, it was about structural dynamics theory. And I think if anybody's listening to this and is quite interested, then that's a good one to go back to to listen to because she talked a lot about at the very conversational level the difference between moving as in putting in content and how you might respond to that and bystanding which is much more about process the sort of de bono blue hat thing right you, and, and and i think that's quite a nice thing to accompany what we're going to talk about today okay that's interesting yes okay so where do we go from there so we talked about the the difference between content and process so a, a useful way to get across the the idea of content and process, I think is is the analogy of an iceberg. The thing that we know about an iceberg, the thing that we all learn in school about an iceberg, is that you can see a little bit above the surface, but the vast majority of the iceberg is underneath the surface. And it's that bit that's underneath the surface that that catches boats out. That's a bit which the Titanic gets, gets sunk on. And as a facilitator, this analogy of an iceberg, the bit above the surface that is seen, and that part that's underneath the surface, which isn't as clear, is very, very useful. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Can you just talk me through that again as a metaphor? I mean, obviously, I know the iceberg metaphor quite well. It's used to sort of describe a lot of things, especially in training. 
Well, what in the in the context of content and process, how are you splitting the iceberg? Okay, so the tip of the iceberg, the part that you can see that is immediately visible and quite obvious, that's the content. The bit underneath the surface, underneath the water, is the process. And that works well because content is immediately obvious. If you walk into a room with a group of people having a conversation, it's very obvious what they're talking about once you've listened to a minute or two of it. However, understanding what's going on beneath the surface, looking at the process, isn't as clear. It takes a little bit more attention, a little bit more thinking about, and you find that maybe you can see close to the surface, but the deeper down you look, the less clear it becomes. And I think that level of analogy works very well for the iceberg model with content of process. Right. Okay. And I think that's interesting because I think a lot of people that are fairly new to training facilitation will focus on how do I get this content across? They'll focus on the bit above the water. Agreed. How do I train this? How do I teach this? How do I get this knowledge across? How do I teach this skill? And it is very content heavy, the, the, the thinking. Yes. And there are times as a trainer when you're definitely focused on the content. Your, your job is essentially to provide information, provide input. But there are other times in the same session that you're running where that isn't what you're doing. What you're looking at is how people are understanding what's being said, what sense are they making of it. And it's that part where you move into facilitation mode. That's the part where you're actually paying attention to the process. So a good trainer or facilitator, whatever the word is, a good one of a good a good one of those. I was going to say, <laughs> a good trainer or facilitator um, would move between the two, uh, you know, as appropriate. Yes, and it's very much a matter of knowing which hat you're wearing at the time. It's not that one is better or worse than the other. It's simply being clear what you're doing at the time, so you don't get the two confused. Because it is it is quite a different approach or skill set, really, between the trainer part where we mean giving information and the process part where you're really working with people's understanding or people's interaction with the content. Right, so it's been a conscious practitioner of switching hats. Yes. To, use, to, to mix Absolutely. our metaphors, switching hacks as we use the iceberg. Indeed, yes. It's interesting because when I've done train the trainer type uh, courses for people, what I tend to find is that people are, are much more comfortable when they're in the trainer mode, in the content mode, wearing that hat because they're much more in control. And the bit they find much more challenging is to re lose the control, if that's the word, and allow the group to, to talk, allow the content to, to come from the group or whatever, but to actually facilitate. It's a lot less, it's a lot more lighter touch. It and is. they found that a lot more yeah. challenging. And I think that's completely understandable. That is very normal. The content is much more definable. It's much easier to set out clearly what the content is and to be clear you can say either i do know this content or i don't know it with process it's much more difficult there isn't a right answer to process it's not cut and dried and it is a much more intuitive approach often it's a matter of not doing anything often it's a matter of listening and waiting for the participants to tell you what's important so i think as a facilitator to be confident about working with process is, a, is quite a different place than being confident about content. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with you. You definitely feel if you're giving content, you're adding value. Whereas, as you said, if you're doing that autonomous facilitation where you're essentially doing nothing or very little, yes. just nudging, you know, perhaps, it, 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 you, do, you do need quite a lot of confidence to do so little. <laughs> it sounds, sounds you know, absurd, but it, it's absolutely true. Yeah, definitely. So, and, and I think... For a lot of facilitators, um, when I used to work purely as a facilitator, my experience was you get dropped in the deep end. Somebody at some stage says, could you facilitate this group? You say yes, you end up doing it and you develop good competency at doing it. But what you don't get is you don't get training in facilitation. And I think what that means is it's quite hard to know if why you're doing what you're doing. You know it works. You know that you are good at it and you're able to do it. But I think confidence can be much more securely grounded when you understand the thinking behind what, what you're doing, why you're doing it. And those times when it gets difficult when you're facilitating, 
if you know why you're working in a particular way, why you're focusing on process and you're willing to sit there quietly and let the group work things out for themselves for a moment, it's much easier to stay with that confidence if you've got a, a an underneath understanding, a, a base, base understanding of why you're doing that. So I, I think confidence and facilitation are very strongly connected um, and it's not an easy thing to get to. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Now, and nothing to add to that other than just reiterate what I was saying in terms of that's how when, when I've trained people in that situation, that's exactly what they've found the, the hardest thing to do. Sure. So you, you were talking then about the iceberg and I, 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 I do really like that as a metaphor in this particular case because it is so easy to focus on what's above the waterline, the content, when you, especially when you're talking about what are the training needs, you're always focusing on content, you're always focusing on what knowledge and skills the person needs to acquire. That's yes. all above the waterline stuff. But yet what actually makes an effective or a less effective training day is all the stuff that's, that's below the waterline. Indeed. You know, how well you as a facilitator manage that stuff. That's what really makes the difference. Yes. And I think when you're wearing your facilitation hat, it's useful to be clear that what you're being paid to do is to manage the process. The participants are responsible for the content. When you're facilitating you're responsible or you're paying attention to the process and the interventions you make are aimed at the process. What interventions can you make to facilitate the process? And you're leaving the participants to make sense of the content themselves. You're helping them to do that, but not by telling them what their understanding is, but by getting them to engage with the content. I think that's a good way of putting it. So, how, so where do we go next with this? To make it, you know, to turn it into what kind of skills and knowledge, etc. That we as facilitators, what can we take away from this? Okay, I I think the next thing to do is to build on the iceberg analogy. I think we initially we've got the idea of an iceberg, a bit above the surface is the content, a bit below below the surface is the process. That that's quite straightforward, relatively straightforward. If you're familiar with John Adair's three circles, which is quite a common model in, in development, then. John Adair talked about the task circle, the team circle, and the individual circle, arranged in a triangular shape with the task circle at the top and the team and the individual circle providing the base of the triangle. And that overlays very helpfully on top of the iceberg. The task is close to the top of the iceberg, partly beneath the surface, beneath the surface and just above it. And the task is why the group are there, what they're actually engaged with. And then, as I said, the, the team and the individual circle sit underneath that. And the reason why I think this is useful, and I'll, I'll move into a, 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 a simple example now, is if you walk into a room and there's a group of people having a discussion about something, somebody, as you walk in, somebody might say to you, okay, you've just come in from the outside. What, what's going on here? What's the group doing? immediate answer is going to be probably related to the content. For instance, the group are discussing a budget. You hear them talking about money and you hear them talking about how much they're going to spend each month. And you say, right, they're discussing a budget. That's, that would be above the surface content. And then the person who's asking you questions might then say, OK, but how are they actually going about that? How are they doing it? And what you would probably pick up on, first of all, is the task stages or the steps of the task that they're going through. So, for instance, you might say, well, they've obviously um, come to an understanding of how much budget is available. They're looking at what they need to achieve with that budget. They're allocating different parts of the budget to different aspects of what they need to achieve. They're um, agreeing amongst themselves that that is a, a common understanding. And then finally, they're prioritizing the budget according to the objectives. That would be a breakdown of the stages they're going through to complete the task. And that is reasonably easy to see and to analyze as somebody watching the group work together. Right, but it's very task focused, isn't it? It's very task focused. It's a very structural sort of approach. It's the sort of thing you can make a, a um, process flowchart to analyze those steps, but it is one step beneath the direct content. It's one step removed from the actual figures they're talking about and the monthly allocation or whatever it might be. So you would say that, sorry, just just to interrupt your second, but when you say task, you 
you, I, I first interpreted that to mean something like that. Well, the task is they're actually having a conversation, a discussion. Yes. Rather than say they're doing it on their own, they're working in a group rather than as individuals, or they're working with a flip chart or whatever it is. That's what I kind of interpreted as task. And I think task is a um, is a, a stage of moving into process. In other words, there's the job to be done, but we can analyse how we're approaching that job that has to be done. In other words, we can break it down into fairly neutral or fairly dispassionate stages. And we can say, first of all, we're collecting all the data together. Then we're analysing that data. Then we're collating it and prioritising it. And that allows us to get one step beyond just the content and begin to see whether we've missed any stages out, whether we've spent not enough time on one stage, haven't done it um, sufficiently well. But it does give you one more level of understanding of what's happening. And it's the first level beneath the surface. It's quite easy to see. It's not uh, particularly arguable. But it does help you understand what the group's doing and how they're going about it. Yeah, no, I can see that. I was just wondering if my example there of interpreting task to mean literally what's the what's the activity that they're undergoing if that's the correct interpretation of task yes i, I it is yes it, it's it's the steps the group are, are undertaking right okay thank you that, that makes sense to me sure and then as we move down below circle what adair identifies is that there are two more key circles and those are the team the group of people and how they actually operate together as a team or as a group. And there's also the individual circle, how the individual players um, play their part, what roles they take on, etc. And as a facilitator, as we move down and start to pay attention at that level of process, it gives us more understanding of what's going on as looking back up through the levels. So, for instance, there's a group of people together they're in the room, they're talking about the budget. But what's happening is that when one person talks, everyone else is shutting up. And when one person make, when the same person makes a suggestion, everyone's nodding their heads and following that suggestion up. Whereas when other people make suggestions, some get picked up, some get dropped. And there's a difference in the way people are responding to each other. And then we begin to see that there's, that's something to do with the roles within the group. The person who everyone nods to is the boss. The people whose ideas don't get picked very up very often maybe are new to the team. And we begin to see that there's more to it than simply the content at the surface. That there are other things that are affecting what's going on at the surface. And it's this idea of looking from the bottom up, up through the group of people who are operating, the inv individuals who make up that group, the stages they've gone through at the task level, that actually dictate what's actually going on at the surface. Those factors, those processes, actually decide whether one group of people get £200 a month or £600 a month. Whereas if we simply look on the surface, we may assume it's a very neutral, objective uh, stage is going on. Whereas actually as a facilitator, we realise that what's going to affect that content is very much tied up and dictated by the processes that are going on under the surface. So that's quite a useful way of looking at it, isn't it? So the using this John Adair's three circles, task, team, individual, that allows you to kind of really analyse and really uh, stay mindful of exactly what is going on at the process level. Yes, I, I think it, start, it starts to separate out some of the processes, and I think it's, it's a very useful way of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, at this stage, we're still analysing what's going on. We're not necessarily doing anything about it. Agreed. We may or may, we may, or may not be. Um, as we said, facilitation can be as little as doing virtually nothing or actually nothing. Mm -hmm. So we've used this model to get to, so we can see what's below the waterline, looking at it at task team individual. Where will we go next with that? Now we've got a bit of analysis. Okay. I think the next thing that's useful to think about is as a facilitator, what are you actually dealing with? So we said as a facilitator, you're focusing on process, but now I want to bring it to life a bit more, really and to look at what you're actually facilitating. And I'm going to use a different analogy this time. I'm going to use the analogy of a stage, as in a stage in a theatre, and looking at the actors on the stage and look at how they interact. 
So there are three main actors, three main parts in this play. And the three main actors are the task itself, the reason why the group is together, the purpose of being together. Secondly, the team, the group of people who are there to work with the purpose. And finally, the facilitator. And if we think about those three parts as what you're working with, it gives us some, some useful, a useful thought process. You're going to have to unpack this one for me. Yes, that's absolutely fine. Go on, go on. Okay, so the, the task, as I said, that's the actual purpose for being there. It's the job in hand. It's the reason why the group of people are assembled. It's what they're, they're aiming to achieve and everything tied up around that aim. The team of people there, those are the people who are present and their relationships with each other. And finally, there's the facilitator who is actually hands-on and is managing the interaction between the task and the team of people. And those are your three main players on the stage. And as in any play, the play is about the relationship between the actors. And it's the relationship between the task, the team and the facilitator that the facilitator is working with. So the team of people are there to work on the task, but their understanding of that task, their familiarity with it, and quite possibly their level of interest in it or buy-in to the importance of it is going to change with time. When, when, when you sit down with a group of people around the table and you say, right, I'm the facilitator, we're here to look at whatever the issue is, people often assume that means that you're going to sort things out for them. In other words, they see you as being responsible for the task and them as being sitting there with their hands folded waiting for you to give them the answers. So part of what you're doing is you're facilitating a movement of the team towards that task, a movement closer to the task, so that by the end, they're actually sitting with the task and realise that sorting it out is their responsibility and that sorting it out is going to make a difference to them and therefore they have a major buy-in to getting to grips with the underlying issues involved in that task. So understanding it from that perspective, using the actors on the stage metaphor, yes. what, new, what new insight is that giving you as a facilitator, how are you? What are you going to do with that way of looking at I, I things? Think to start with, it allows you to monitor your behaviour as a facilitator, because as a facilitator, it's really important that you don't get involved in content, that you don't move too close to the task and start, I'm going to say, interfering with it, but um, running or carrying out the task. Because the more you're involved with it, the more difficult it is for the, t for the team to get involved with it. So it allows you to monitor your distance from the task and to keep yourself separate. And likewise, it allows you to monitor your relationship with the group and to make sure you don't get over-involved and over-identified with the group of people so that they become much clearer that you're there to help them, but not to actually carry out the work. Right. So it helps you to position yourself and focus on the relationships and the positions rather than the content. Absolutely. One of the main things you're doing is that you are managing the boundaries between yourself, the task and the team, and between each of those three parts. Okay, so that, that's quite an interesting way of looking at it. So what, what do we actually do then? What does this look like when, we, when we're in, in the training room itself? I, this is the facilitator as one of those three players on the stage is there in a, in quite an active role the things that you're doing are primarily you're managing the time available you're making sure that pe people understand the amount of time available and that they have an idea of how far through they are and how much is realistic you're also making sure that they stay focused on the task and you're asking them questions to help them stay focused on the task and you're also providing structures and tools and techniques so that they can engage with that task effectively. You're making sure they understand it, that they check their understanding with each other before they start. You may well be providing structures to help them um, relax and get clear about purpose. And then as that moves on, you're going to quite probably be providing tools and techniques to help them to analyze the issue, to take it apart, to um, identify key components, and to put it together into a different shape that is more useful for them. Okay, so you're talking about managing the time, 
managing keeping people focused yes. you know policing tangent police that kind of thing yes. and then also um providing tools and techniques to help people really understand really think things through analyze and potentially consider how to apply it i guess in their particular context agreed and i've described I've described that role as being hands-on, as being a managing role. In other words, it's an active place to be as one of the players on the stage. And part of the reason for making that distinction is because there's another part involved in this. And the other part is you as a facilitator taking some steps back and moving into what I'm going to call a helicopter position where you're observing what's going on. You're You've got a hands-on role, which is on stage with the players, with the task and the team. But you've got a secondary position, which is a out, a step back, observing and watching what's actually happening. And these two roles are equally important. You get paid to be hands-on and managed, to provide tools and techniques, to provide structures, to watch what's happening and ask questions, etc. But you also get paid as a facilitator to take a step back and watch what's happening and notice what isn't being talked about, to notice what is people aren't conscious about. And at the process level, you're picking up the processes which are not available to people immediately, but which are affecting what's going on. And this helicopter position is a secondary but equally important role for the facilitator. So you're doing that simultaneously? Yes, but let's be realistic. The hands-on part can be very busy. So when you're on stage, you're introducing a tool and technique, you're asking questions about people's understanding, etc. That's a busy place to be. And whilst you're doing that, it's for most of us, that is all we can cope with. But there are other times when you're sitting there and the group are busy, they're talking, there's a discussion going on, and whilst you're listening to it, you're also able to mentally take a step back and think, what's actually happening at the moment? What's happening to the energy of this group? What's happening to the relationships and the interactions between people at the moment? What's really affecting people's participation? So you're looking for opportunities to move into the helicopter position. I'm not saying you do it all the time because that would be ridiculous and you are very busy a lot of the time. But there are other times when the group's engaged in something when you can very much as a facilitator sit back and think, so what's really going on at the moment? What's really affecting the way this group of people are working together? And those are the times when you're most able to move fully into the helicopter position. And you mentioned then before you said about observing processes that are not available to the group. Is that the language you used? Yeah. Can you just explain that? Sure. With, with process, there are some processes which are pretty conscious and which are pretty immediately available to, to us to notice. But there are also factors, there are also processes that as a facilitator, you're going to be more conscious of because it's your job to watch and think about that. Whereas for the participants, that isn't their job. That They're not there in the room primarily to focus on, on process. They're there to focus on the content. So as a facilitator, you're thinking, what else is happening here? What are the things which may not be so obvious and not so easy to um, identify that are still affecting the way this group's happening? And as a facilitator with experience, you you develop a sense for what's important in a group. So you're talking about being able to observe a process that you think would be very useful, but they're not necessarily using. Yes. Um, so a process in that sense, we're looking at the steps you follow. But what I'm referring to more is a process in the sense of the psychological processes that are going on within a group. In other words, why people are interacting in the way they're interacting, how one person's behaviour is affecting another person, why this group tends to operate in a certain way, whereas a different group would operate quite quite differently. So you're doing quite a lot of observation. Absolutely. You? You're being extremely observant throughout. So the helicopter position, that, that idea of taking a step back from what's happening, is about observing. What I'm saying is half your job as a facilitator is to observe. Or it's, right. it's a, an equally balanced part of your job, meaning it carries as much weight as the hands-on busy part. And what? And what? Okay, so we've talked about what ob observation is. Yes. And we've talked about using the Adair model to help us sort of structure what we're looking at, using the actors on the stage model, which helps us position ourselves and helps us think about the distances and relationships between task group and ourselves. Yes. 
and then we're sort of staying conscious of the fact of getting in helicopter model whenever we can so that we can sit back and observe yes so when are we going to be intervening what's the what's the process there what what are we going to be thinking okay so uh, observation and intervention are two parts of the same issue in a way you have to observe in order to make interventions obviously if you're noticing nothing at all you have nothing to intervene in because you're, you're not no, you're not paying attention to it so what you do is you observe first and then from those observations you decide which ones are helpful to the group to actually check turn into an intervention and i'd like to talk a little bit about what you actually observe how you observe and then yeah that would be useful yeah move on to the intervention so so with observation there, there'll be a reason why you're facilitating you know you've moved you're working with a group because it's usually because things aren't working 100% and you might have been called in because the communication in the group's not effective or the leadership, whatever. And the reason why you called in is going to give you one lens, one thing that you're looking at when you're observing. But beneath that, there's a more generic level of observation, which I think is very useful to all of us as facilitators in all situations. And that's the level I'm going to, to talk about now. And, and here, there, there are three lenses or three um, ways in which you observe and the three are, are interlinked the three are part and parcel of the same thing and the first one it is really useful to observe at the level of objective reality in other words to try to be as factual as possible with yourself as to what you're seeing going on in other words noticing who's speaking to who and who's not speaking to who to notice how many times a person is speaking and whether that's 20 times or one time, rather than ascribing a meaning to it, saying one person is very involved because obviously they're talking a lot and one person is obviously not involved because they're not talking a lot. That would be an interpretation, whereas the factual observation is the number of times somebody has spoken. Right, okay, so very factual, very sticking to exactly what you've seen and, and deliberately not interpreting it. Deliberately not interpreting it. Keeping your observations to things that you can... If, if when we look at the turning it into an intervention part, there will be no question about it being right because you've stuck with purely factual information. It may take people one moment to remember, but they're not going to argue about whether one person did speak six times or didn't. And, and that gives you a highly objective, almost clinical level or impartial level of observation. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of what you could prove in court, isn't it? It's, yes. Almost sort of legal. Indeed. And part of an observation and being a witness are, are part and parcel of the same thing in the sense. So so the idea of being a good witness is that you are paying attention and observing carefully. So the second way of observing is actually the opposite of what I've just said. It's the interpretation part. And as a as a human being, when we watch and see things happening in front of us, we do interpret. And as a facilitator, it is really useful to be as conscious as possible of the interpretations you're making. In other words, you watch the group of people operate and you think, what sense am I making of what I'm seeing going on? So you see one person talk 20 times and somebody else talk once, and you're making the assumption that the person talking 20 times is really excited and keen about what they're talking about and the person who spoke speaks once is very unsure about the subject matter now that is interpretation you don't know that but it allows you to check it with the group or it allows the group to check that out because everyone else may, may, may be making exactly the same assumption and yet it may not match the experience of the people you're watching in other words the person who's speaking 20 times may not be doing it because they're confident but they may be doing it because they're very unconfident and unsure and likewise, the person who speaks once may be unsure, but likewise, they, they may equally be very clear, have already thought this through completely in their head and just have one contribution to make because that's where they've ended up. So it allows you and the group to check out what's happening. So you would actually make these, so you, you, you've made a factual observation and now you've made a judgment. Yes. And then you just literally just test that judgment out or you... That, perhaps not every, every single time, but you make a decision to test that judgment out just by commenting on it. That's the option it gives you. Sorry, I'm getting on to intervention, aren't I? Well, that's fine, but the, the two sit very closely together, so it's quite natural yeah. to, to move from one to the other. 
But I'll save my question. Go okay, on, sorry. Right. I put you off your stride there. That's okay. And then the third level of observation, the third lens that is useful to use as a facilitator, is to observe yourself. So you as a facilitator sitting there with the group, you need to be, a word that is around a lot at the moment is mindful. You need to be very mindful of how you are experiencing being with the group, being a, a witness, an observer to what's going on. So notice if you're hungry, notice that. If you're bored, notice that. If you're very energized, notice that. If you're finding it difficult to intervene in the group and feeling slightly nervous about what you're about to say, notice that. If you're feeling very excited and you're feeling like you want to jump in and you want to get involved in the content, notice that. Because that can lead you on to information about what's actually going on in the group, what it's like for the group members to be there working together. So if you take your own experiences seriously and you're willing to just spend a moment just checking out what's happening for you, that again can pick up a lot of the unspoken processes that are going on within the group. So those are the three lenses yes. that we're talking about. Very factual, very no interpretation at all, just absolutely so-and-so spoke six times, so-and-so is just looking out the window, but no judgment whatsoever. And then secondly, you said judgment. Yes. So now you are making judgments, but you're very, doing it very conscious. You're very mindful of the fact that you're making a judgment. You're not observing a fact, and the, the, that's, an extreme, that's a very different thing. Yes. And then lastly, you're just being very observant about your own feelings and just being very mindful yes. um, about your own experiences, emotions, etc. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that those are the three lenses that you talked about. Those are the three lenses. And then that moves us into interpreter, uh, sorry, intervention. That moves us into interventions. So this is when we decide what to do with these observations. Exactly. The first, what we've been talking about is essentially gathering data, gathering data right. in different packages, in different flavors, but essentially gathering data. And then the next issue is, turning those into interventions, deciding which ones to use and then how to use them as interventions. And the purpose of an intervention is usually to either get the group to think about how they're working together, get the group to um, check their own process and if it's helpful to them, or simply to redirect their process, to, to actually manage their process to steer their process to make it more useful so you tend to intervene where you think something is causing the group to stick or to block in, in, in other words they're not working as effectively together as they might and by either making that fact clear to them or simply steering them on a better path you're going to help them carry on with their task so you're, you're intervening when you see that there's a need to well as you say just put them on a better path or yes or get a better result out of the out of the process. What I should do here is just just add that sometimes it is useful to point out to the group the things that are working really well as well, as well. Because what what I just described was when things aren't working so well, or when there's a problem with the way they're working together. And as a facilitator, that is your a large part of your your remit to notice how effectively they're working together, how effectively they're completing the task, and either nudge or draw attention to the things that are getting in the way. But it is also useful to point out to a group when things are working really smoothly, really well, so that they can consider or, or recognise that that's the case, and essentially to reward positive behaviours. So I just want to put that in as an aside, because I'm going to focus more on the blockages, on the times when things aren't working as well. Yeah, I was going to say that. Is there a role in terms of reinforcing something when you see it working well? That yeah. you've just answered that question. That yes, there absolutely is. Okay, so that, that, I think that's really useful. So we've we, we've we've done quite a lot of analysis of this behaviour. We've understood what our own role is as a facilitator. We're looking below the waterline in the iceberg. We're using Adair's circles, and we're looking through these different lenses to make our observations. And now we're going to intervene to either reinforce something that's working well, or to correct something that we don't think is working particularly well. Yes. And taking us back to content and process, this is about an intervention focused on the process, not intervening in the content. And, and what we're doing with the, the process intervention is essentially drawing to the group's attention what's happening and giving them a chance, giving them the, the space and the time to address that, to, in other words, to change their focus from content to process. So our intervention is 
likely if we're using an objective reality intervention it's going to be something along the lines of i've there are six of you in this group and i noticed that four of you have participated so far and two haven't said anything how's that for you as a group so that's an objective reality data fed back into the group to interrupt the content and get them to just think about how they're contributing to that content and that's what i mean by a process intervention and that would be right that's a good example yeah that's a very helpful example to use the interpretation intervention i might say i've noticed that some people in the group have spoken so far and some haven't and i'm just wondering if that's got anything to do with the different levels of seniority we've got present in this group in other words what i'm doing is i'm taking my interpretation being very explicit about it and essentially offering it to the group so they stop and think oh is that what i think's happening or had i noticed that or actually I'd noticed it, but I don't think that's the right reason. I think it's for a very different reason. So I'm offering them an interpretation. In a way, I'm putting my neck on the line to encourage them to open up and talk about why they think something's happening. And what about using the same example with the third lens, which is looking at it through your own perspective, looking at yourself? Okay, so that one where I might say, I'm realising that as I sit here, I'm finding it quite difficult to join in with this conversation. And I wonder if that's because I'm a newcomer. In other words, I'm recognising my own experience with the group. I'm finding it difficult to make an intervention. I'm finding it difficult to participate in this discussion. And I'm checking about what I think might be happening for myself in order, again, to encourage people in the group to check if that's their experience. And when would you, how would you decide which of these three to, to use? I think there's a um, a level of risk within these three. Within these three, so the first one, the objective reality, is moderately risk-free. To say I'm not I'm not saying it's without any risk, but it's a moderately gentle and neutral intervention to make. Whereas if we move into interpretation, you up the risk and you up the amount that is being uncovered because you're uncovering some of what might be there to encourage others to uncover a bit more. And then the third one, and I don't think my example was was the best in the world there, but the third one really is where you take your own experience and you offer that to the group to see what they do with it. On the Obviously, with the thinking in the background that you believe there is a link, you think there is a link between your experience and what's going on in the group. Yeah, you're hoping other people will recognise it and say, yes, I feel the same, yes. or at least, to, at least to some degree. And because it's based upon your personal disclosure, your sharing of your experience of the group, it tends to give more permission to participants to respond at a similar level. In other words, to respond in quite a personal way to what their experience of being there is. But it is slightly higher risk. Agreed. Because you're not you're, you're not you're observing, you're interpreting, but then you're also talking about the impact that's having. Yes, I agree. It is higher risk. So you're your decision about what level of risk you enter will do, be to do with your judgment as a facilitator to how far through the overall process the group are, to what your relationship and the group's relationship is, how much trust and rapport there is between you and the group, how mature you feel the group is, and what they're actually ready for. So you will match the intervention to your experience of being with the group. And a lot of this is being extremely self-controlled, isn't it? Because... It, it is, yes. To, to stay in process, to have the discipline to be consciously thinking through these different lenses and to be thinking about how people are positioned to task, etc., to be very conscious and self-aware of yourself and how it's affecting you, and then making this decision again consciously, which you're having to do in relatively, you know, very short periods of time. You yes. Know, it, seconds. it takes us back very clearly to the helicopter idea of the players on the stage and the facilitator in the stepping back position, because this is really the essentials of that observing mode as a facilitator all the time as a facilitator or whenever you possibly can you're thinking what's happening what's happening for me what's happening for the group what stage is the group at and as a facilitator you develop the mindset the way of thinking where you're constantly interrogating what you're seeing ha happening in front of you and i think that's the the part of facilitation that facilitators need encouragement and permission um, and practice in as well but but definitely it's important as a facilitator to hear 
that that is part of the job role and that that way of thinking actually adds value to the group at the end of the day because it allows you as a facilitator to make interventions about process and to keep clear of content, to understand why you're keeping clear of content and to make sure that you, you keep clear of it. You said at the beginning that a lot of what you do these days is actually helping people to become facilitators. Yeah. It's training. What are the kind of big challenges that they face when they're learning all this stuff? I think probably one of the big challenges as facilitators is a lot of us work on our own with groups. I know that people do co-facilitate and there are some organisations and situations where people do facilitate it in a group of two or more. But overall, a large number of facilitators facilitate on their own and you actually get very little feedback, very little um, observation of your facilitation practice. Participants may say to you, that was great, that went really well, thank you, or you know that wasn't such a good session. But it's hard to get... Um, detailed, specific feedback on exactly what you're doing from a position of um, understanding and respect of what you're actually setting out to do. I think that's probably the first one of actually getting clear observation and feedback of your work as a facilitator. It's something that very few of us get in the normal course of work. And I think on a facilitation training course, that's why practice and feedback is so essential. Yeah, it, it, it is quite a lonely job, I think, yes. in many ways. And because you mentioned before about the importance of keeping a distance from the group as well. Absolutely. Which I abs absolutely agree with you, it's essential. But it does make it quite a lonely job. It's quite interesting in that way. It does. It means that your, your social needs as a human being aren't being met whilst you're facilitating. They obviously will be outside the group, away from the group in other settings. But in that time bubble, whilst you're facilitating, you're not getting the normal social needs met because you're making sure that you do keep one step removed you obviously get politeness and you interact with people and you speak to them but you are also the facilitator as opposed to being a group member and there is a clear difference between those two absolutely you don't get that same sense of belonging your social needs met i think is the best way of putting it so if you were as, as an experienced trainer of facilitators and if you were summing this up what would you say that people who want to be facilitators what are the key things that they're going to need what are the key things they're going to have to be able to do? I, I think, as we've been talking about, step one, and I don't say it in that way that it's once it's done, it's finished, but I think the first step that you can work with all the time as a facilitator is process and content. It, the step one is probably acknowledging that fact, realising what it means, but I think all the time as facilitators, we are focusing on process, learning to recognise it, picking up process, in other words, um, seeing it, being acted out in front of us and learning to identify it, just becoming more and more familiar with process. And I think that is the absolute foundation bedrock of facilitation. I think then the next point is really about confidence. I think, as you said at the start, sometimes when you're facilitating, the confidence to not say something actually takes a vast amount of confidence. To sit there in silence and not intervene means that to do that competently, you need to have a really good understanding of why you're doing it, what your role is, and how that's going to impact upon the group. So being confident to sit there with a group and allow them to work together and not intervene simply to get your own needs met, but to intervene at the times when it's useful to the group, takes a level of confidence which is well, well supported by observation and feedback from, from somebody else. In other words, it's really useful to get that supervision aspect around facilitation. Yeah, I think that that decision not to do anything, it's really important to stress that that is still an active decision not to act. It's not You're not, not doing anything because you didn't think of anything to do. It's a deliberately stepping back and deliberately keeping out of it. Agreed. Which is the right decision at the time. It's a better decision than intervening. Yes. And I think that's the bit that's hard. Because the easiest thing is to always intervene, to do something active. Agreed. And then I think there are skills, there definitely are skills as a facilitator that it's useful to learn uh, or useful to emphasise. I, I don't think you need to learn them because I think as facilitators, as people interested in working with, with other people, each of us will have these skills. But the interpersonal skills of being with a group and being able to paraphrase what's being said, to summarise it, to work from a position of empathy and to ask questions to bring out more from people and to work with a um, attitude of respect and um, respect and valuing of the, of the people you're working with it is 
very centrally how you work as facilitator. And I think finally, for me, the tools and techniques and the structures come in and they are they are very useful to have. But I think they're an add on. And I say that because a lot of people, when they think about learning to facilitate, start with the tools and techniques and the structures. And I can understand why. But in fact, I think that is probably the wrong way around, that you need to learn to facilitate first in order to facilitate the tools and techniques rather than seeing them as the, the magic wand that will make things work better. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think people do always start with the tools and techniques because it feels like that's what comes after content. Yes. Which is the easiest thing to start with. Absolutely. Sure. Well, thank you very much for that, Nick. I think that was really insightful. Thank you. And it's very interesting to spend so much time really drilling down into what it is to be a facilitator. And there's so much in there. Then yeah. it's so interesting to sort of really break that open and think it through. We don't often get a chance to do that when we've been facilitating for so many years. I think it's a really, really interesting conversation. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. So do you want to just tell everybody who you are, Nick, and how they could get in touch with you if they want to know more about this? Yes, certainly. So, so my, my name is Nick Eve, and I work under the name of, of Elements. And what I do is I, I train facilitators. I run a program called the Facilitators Development Program. And that is, it, there is quite a bit of detail about that on the website, which is elementsuk.com. Okay. And if anybody does want to see more about Nick, you also have a page on the Trainer Tools website, which is trainer-tools.com. And there's your bio photo and a couple of links on there as well. Okay, that's really good. Okay, thank you very much, Nick. I hope to see you again on this podcast. Thank you. So that was me talking to Nick Eve about facilitation and the, some of the theory that sits underneath some of the behaviours that we probably do a lot of that actually naturally, but I found that really useful way of structuring it and thinking about it. Some of the visual metaphors that Nick was talking about, I've put links on the website and you can see some of those actually on the website so you, you don't need to imagine them, you can actually see them. From this point on, due to enormous work pressure, I am going to change this the regularity of this podcast and go from being bi-monthly to just one a month. I think that'll be a lot more manageable and a lot more sustainable over the long term. So the next podcast will be on the 15th of October and it will be with Paul Tizard and we'll be talking about team building. And it's a really good cast again, a really, a really uh, fun one. So please do make sure you download, subscribe or whatever so that you can listen to that as well. So thank you very much for your support. Hope you enjoyed that cast. Hope you enjoy the next one and see you next time.